Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 6, 16 through 18. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they said, set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. It is a joy to be with you today and to preach the word of God to you. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and we can get right going this morning. Father God, we invite your Holy Spirit here. We are people who, we are inundated all week long with all kinds of different opinions, all kinds of different hot takes, all kinds of different views of the world. And if we're honest, Lord, we get tired and we get confused and we just sometimes just want to throw our hands up and give in because we just don't know what the truth is. But you do. And your word is truth, and your word is living and active, and your word does straighten us out in the crooked parts of our soul, and your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so we, this morning, we sit down, we settle, we put ourselves underneath your word, and we ask that you, the God of all creation, that you would speak to us specifically this morning from your word. Father, I am a sinner, just like everyone else in this room. I don't think perfectly or clearly all the time. And so I need you to think through my mind this morning to help me out. I need you to speak through my vocal cords, Father. I want your people to hear your voice and not just mine. Would you do this, Lord, um, for your glory, for the good of our city, for the good of our church, and for the joy of every single person here? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, if you are new here, one of the unique things about our church is that we study and preach through books of the Bible, book by book and verse by verse. We do this because all of the Bible is inspired by God and meant to teach us everything that is necessary to know about God and to live rightly in our world. And if you do not know the scriptures, you won't have an accurate understanding of who God is. You won't understand what he's done in this world, what he's doing right now, what he's going to do in the future. And you won't have an accurate understanding of how you are to live right now, today, in this world. Now, the Bible is a very special book. In fact, it would be more accurate to call the Bible a very special collection of books because it is actually 66 different books that were written by 40 different authors, all under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then compiled together as their authenticity and inspiration was affirmed. The Bible is quite literally the most important book that has ever been written. First, it was it was, I don't know if you know this, it was literally, the Bible was literally the first book. Before there were books, everything was written down on 
tablets or papyrus or scrolls. And as such, they were really difficult to preserve, really difficult to store, really difficult to share. So early Christians invented the book in order to read their Bibles and share them with their friends and loved ones. Second, you can also determine the importance of a book by how many other books reference it. Shakespeare's writing are foundational to the English language because how many later writers reference him and his writings? Well, there is nothing that even comes close to the scriptures. The Bible is the book that is referenced and sourced more than any other book in history. It is the most foundational and seminal book in the world. Dr. Jordan Peterson, probably the most famous evolutionary psychologist in the world, who it seems like the Lord is saving him and he's moving in the direction. If he's not already a Christian, it seems like he's on that path. He was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he said this about the Bible, quote, it isn't that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more true than just true. What he means by this is to, when we say the Bible is true, that's weak sauce. That's lame sauce. The Bible is so much more than just true. The Bible is the only thing that makes knowing truth with a capital T even possible. Without the Bible, every other book, every other opinion is just that, an opinion, someone else's own perspective. The Bible is the only one that says this is God's view of the world. This is God's word. This is truth. Fascinating when you think of it that way. <clears throat> also, the Bible is unique because it is made up of many different genres of literature. This is also one of the really confusing things when you're reading the Bible and you're like, it, it, go, it goes between different genres pretty fluidly. This collection of books that we have in the Bible isn't just a long list of ethical do's and don'ts. If you want that, you can go to the Quran. In this book, there's poetry, there's songs, there's dense theological treatises like the book of Romans. There's prophecies that tell the future. There's books of wisdom full of blue-collar advice on how the world works and how we should work in it. There's gospels that tell of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then there's long sections of historical narrative like we are reading here in Ezra. Now, each one of these genres require a different reading and interpretation strategy. Okay, scholars call this hermeneutics. We don't talk about that word very often. Hermeneutics is the way to read and understand a certain type of writing. You read and understand a poem much different than you read and understand historical narrative. People sometimes say, do you believe the Bible is literally true? Yes, we believe the Bible is literally true, but it's way more than just literally true. 
When Psalm 91.4 says that God will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge, that his faithfulness is a shield and buckler, that is, in one sense, not literally true. Okay, God doesn't literally have wings, right? What is it? It's a metaphor. It's poetic language meant to teach us that God protects his people the way a mother bird would protect her children, right? So the Bible is more than just literally true. Now, I was, I was talking with my wife this past week. <laughs> she told me that this sermon series through Ezra has been one of the hardest for her to follow. I did not take offense to that. I said, well, it's been actually one of the hardest for me to preach as well. And it's been the hardest for me to preach for several different reasons. One, it's historical narrative. It's telling real history, describing real events, and people that lived over 2,500 years ago. That by itself will cause many of us to go, what does this have to do with me? What is this, history class? Do I really need to know this stuff? And for a long time, the church wrongheadedly has said, no, you don't need to know this stuff. I have never heard anyone preach through Ezra. I've never been in church that preached through Ezra. When I was doing research for this, a lot of the preachers that I know and love have never preached through Ezra, right? And they probably wouldn't say, oh, Ezra's not important. You don't need to understand Ezra. But by their actions, they preach other books instead, right? Everybody's preached through Luke. Everybody's preached through Galatians. Everybody's pre preached through Ephesians. Very few people have preached through Ezra. Why? Because I think, one, it's difficult. And two, we just don't understand what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with the gospel? Secondly, another reason this has been really hard is this is a time in Israel's history where the judgment of God has fallen on him, on, their peop, on the, his people. Listen, long past are the glorious days of King David and Solomon. At this point in time, they have no king. They have no temple right? They have no Ark of the Covenant. They have no Shekinah glory. They have no distinct place to call their own. They have been removed from the promised land. Therefore, it's, it's really a dark and difficult period in the life of God's people. That can, just that by itself, when you're studying a dark period, that by itself can go, nah, I don't want to hear this. Like most of you probably don't gravitate in your devotional to the book of Job, right? Until you get that cancer diagnosis, and then you might. Until you have a loved one pass away, and then you might. And then you go and you, and you, thank, you thank God that it's there to walk you through that dark and difficult season. So this is a difficult book for those reasons, so why should we study it? Well, we should study it because the Bible's primary author is God. And as such, listen, I want you to hear that. The Bible's primary author is God. And as such, 
God, as an author, is writing this book, and this book is first and foremost a story. All 66 books, all the different genres, all of them contribute uniquely to this one overarching story of God. And as you read the Bible over and over and over, you begin to see that God is a storyteller. And what he likes to do is he likes to retell stories, certain narrative arcs, certain themes, certain thematic elements, certain characters. He likes to write them in and replay them over and over and over. And he does this to shape us and to get our attention. And I want to see this morning, there's two, thing, two main things that we need to see as we're reading stories and we're reading Old Testament and we're reading different things in the scriptures. One, by reading these different stories, we are meant to learn how to play our part. Let me ask you this. What type of character are you to be? As an author is writing a story, he's, try, he's writing a story, he's, de, he's determining all the different characters, all the different plot lines, where it's going, and he's writing in certain types of characters, right? He's writing in certain types of values. And this, do you know who you are? Do you know what character you're supposed to play? When you get to certain scenes in your life, do you go, oh, I've seen this before. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know how to respond to this difficulty or to this trial or to this temptation. So, one, when we're reading the stories of the Bible, we're meant to say, okay, how does this connect to my story? What type of character do I want to be in this story? But secondly, we are meant to recognize who this whole story points to, okay? So there's the Bible and all the little mini stories that make up the mega story. They're meant to do two things. They're meant to teach us how to live within God's story, and they're meant to point to the one who the whole story culminates in. Let me show you how this works. Here's one theme that God likes to replay over and over. We'll, we'll start with the moral of the story, and then we'll work out how it, work, how it works itself out in story. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, <clears throat> pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That moral is stated all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are told in the New Testament that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, one way of teaching that is just like that. Didactic teaching, boom, here's the moral of the story. But God does more than just that through the Bible. He also depicts that reality through narrative all over the scriptures. We see it told in the Tower of Babel, right? Pride goes before destruction. Let us build this great city. And God pff, confuses their language, right? We see it in Daniel with the story of Nebuchadnezzar as he conquered Israel and brought them in to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar says this, quote, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What's he saying? 
Look what I have done. Look what I have built. What does God do? God humbles him, and he has some kind of, literally, he has some kind of psychotic break that has him acting like an ox eating grass in the field. God's like, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. If you don't just believe it when it's on the screen, let me show it to you in character form. Let me show it to you in narrative form. Let me show it to you as a story. And as you read Nebuchadnezzar, you, you're not meant to go, what a moron. You're meant to go, whoa. How often do I do that in my own life? I'm reminded right now of, of the gov- Governor Cuomo in New York who, who as they were getting through the pandemic, Boldly proclaimed on public television, God didn't do this, we did this. And then he writes a book on leadership in pandemic, leadership in trial. And then months later, it's revealed how much of a failure of leadership he was, how arrogant he was, and how far now he has, how far now he has fallen from his high horse. This is a story that God likes to tell over and over. Now, This story is meant to do more than just teach us how to live. This story, remember, it's meant to teach us how to live, and it's meant to point towards the one the whole story is about. So think about this. This is all over the Bible, all over the Old Testament, depicted in many different stories. Then God sends the one. This whole story and collection of stories, the one that this is all meant to point to, and Jesus, the Son of God, comes as a humble, poor carpenter and teacher. He comes to mankind in such a way that only the humble can actually see him and love him and receive him as the son of God and the savior of the world. The proud resist him. The proud shun him. The proud make fun of him. The proud reject him. And the proud ultimately will crucify him. So do you see, when when God tells us that pride comes before destruction, he's not just teaching us how to live in this world and how to have a good life. He's also trying to prepare us for the one, prepare us for Jesus. Because if we don't do our work now and seek humility rather than pride, when Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, shows up, we'll go, no thanks. I kind of like Herod. No thanks. I kind of like this real bold, brash, confident, proud leader. I like Nebuchadnezzar. Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. So, for consider how God has called us into worship and enjoy him. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, this is what he's doing. The Apostle Paul is looking at his church, in a sense, and he, it's kind of offensive, right? And he's, he's saying, hey, guys, remember when God called you? You guys weren't awesome. 
You guys weren't rock stars. You guys weren't wise. You guys weren't powerful. You weren't of noble birth. You were kind of the least of these. You were overlooked by the world. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. This is the way God likes to do it. God overlooks the proud. God bypasses the one that you think is going to get it. God likes to line all of the brothers up in order and go, nope, 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 nope. I'll take the moron. (laughs) That's the way he likes to do it because that's the way he gets the glory. God looks past the proud, gives grace to the humble. We get all the way down here, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, that's the reason God chooses those who are not the best in the world. Because he gets the glory and those people will, will therefore then realize, I didn't get here by my own strength. I didn't get here by my own wisdom. I didn't save myself through my own righteousness. The only way I can rejoice is in the Lord. I can boast in the Lord. So one of God's favorite themes is meant to teach us that the way of Christ is humility rather than pride. Now, as you read, you see these, there's just these themes over, they're all over the scriptures. You see the, the, the unlikely hero, right? It's not the big, strong, older brother. It's the weakling out in the field that gets chosen. You see God pulling a pagan out of a pagan nation and promising them to change the whole world. You see God in the midst of all of these big kingpins ruling kingdoms, you see God moving the chess pieces across the board as he is actually ruling the kingdoms of men. We talked about one of these themes during Advent, out of darkness Light, that's a theme you see over and over. Just when you think the story's about to be over and the person's about to die, God comes in at the last second. You see the, and learn that even that human beings think repentance is a negative thing. Repentance is a hard thing. Repentance is a shameful thing. But the scriptures teaches us that the, of the joy and the blessedness of Repentance. And when we go to God with a repentant heart, he loves to forgive our sins and he loves to welcome us back and he even runs out after us as we see in the prodigal sons. He runs out after us and scoops us up, excited that we've came back to him. All of these themes are meant to teach us something about life with God and also they're meant to point us to Jesus where we see their fulfillment. We are meant We are meant, every one of you, not just scholars, not just pastors, not just preachers, every single one of us are meant to so understand the scriptures that we are able to rightly understand our current scene, the current scene that we are in, and we'll know what is expected of us as a character in God's ongoing story. Guys, if you only want thou shalt nots, Thou shalt not, like the ethical commands of the Bible, cover maybe 20% of life. 
The other 80% of life, you've got to understand what, how should I behave here? How should I respond here? What should I do? You've got to understand that by, by being immersed in this, uh, the scriptures, immersed in the story of scriptures, immersed in the wisdom literature. This guy's acting a fool. How am I supposed to respond to him? Proverbs. Don't respond to the fool unless you're going to be a fool. Next proverb. Respond to the fool unless he thinks he's wise. What? Which one? Right? Exactly. What does your situation demand? What are the details? What are the narrative situ- what, what are the narrative pieces going on in this story? You're meant to think scripturally. Think biblically. Put yourself in all of the narratives of the Bible and say, where, was, where is this at? How should I respond here to this certain situation? Now, so far in Ezra, we have seen a bunch of these themes. We saw the, the, the moral, when you're doing something right for God, expect opposition. Right? He's been replaying that over and over. One of my favorites that we just saw was this. Here's, this, here's the way God built the universe, guys. Wickedness backfires. Rebellion backfires. Opposition to God backfires. Ecclesiastes 10.8 says this, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. What we've seen so far in Ezra, all of those people who've came against God's people and tried to stop the building, they're sent letters to the king, they've done all of this stuff. Guess what? The, that has all came back on top of them. The, the pit they have dug, they fell into themselves. And now God, through that king, has said, told them, you cut it out. You stop it. Let them build. We see this in all kinds of different places in the scriptures. Well, today I want to draw your attention to one more theme. A theme that gets replayed over and over and over. And it is meant to be replayed in your life. It might even be being replayed this morning in your life. And it also, again, points towards our greater fulfillment in Jesus. Here's how Paul describes the moral of this story in Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What should I do right now? Rejoice in the Lord. Hmm. Here's how James, the brother of Jesus, says it in James chapter 1, verses 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet ver- trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. James says, count it all joy, my brothers. Rejoice. They have the same root word here. Rejoice and count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, most of the time when preachers preach on these texts, the response of the people is, okay, yeah, but what does that look like in real life? How am I supposed to have joy when things are not going my way? How am I supposed to have joy when things are really difficult? How am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord when I've missed an hour of sleep? 
And the baby still cried through the night. How am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord when it's just, I'm just kind of not feeling it today? Ezra chapter 6 shows us what this looks like in real life. So when you come up to this scene, the scene where you're just not really feeling it, when you come into this scene where you don't really know, should you worship? You don't really know, you know, what's God asking you? You, you, know, you know how to respond. Ezra chapter 6, let me catch us up very quickly. This has been a difficult period in their lives. They've lived for years in exile in Babylon at first without the ability to worship God rightly. Then they've, uh, God called them to come back and rebuild the temple. So they uprooted their families and they made this arduous trek back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Once they got back, anybody that had in their mind that this is going to be smooth sailing because God's in it. Hey, if God is for us, who could be against us? Obviously, this is going to go well. And they get back and their neighbors hate them. And they know they're called to love their neighbors. But God calls them to first and foremost build this worshiping community, build this temple. And that is an act of love, even though your neighbors hate it. The work was hard. And the public viewed them as a negative influence on their society. So many of them just kind of gave up and went back home and started working on their own houses. Kind of gave up God's mission and settled for their own self-seeking mission of personal success and comfort. So God had to raise up prophets to get them back on mission to finish the work, to finish his house. But here we are in Ezra chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, 20 years after they came back to Jerusalem. 20 years they've been working on this thing. And the final stone has been placed in the temple and they're finished with their work. <clears throat> now this hasn't been easy, but after some starts and stops, some sinning and some repenting, some fighting and arguing, some resisting and working hard, they have been faithful to the task at hand. They kept plotting. They kept working. They just kept putting one foot in front of the other. Do you realize? <clears throat> I think we, Americans are kind of obsessed with like motivation and waking up and trying to keep our goals in front. Can you imagine building a temple that took 20 years? Right? We just watched the bridge go up in what, like three or four? But in the midst of it, we're just like, are they doing anything? This one guy with a vest on out here, right? What? Can you imagine 20 years? Your kids walk by and go, man, mom and dad, did they get one stone laid this month? Doesn't look much different, right? You've got to have something more than motivation. You have to something more than what wakes you up and makes you feel good and get you, you want to wake up and get after it. You've got to have something that's just habitual, Something like, this is who I am. This is what I'm here for. I'm going to get up and just do it. Right? This is what God's called me to do. Not, do I wake up? Do I feel like it this morning?
The question is now, so I just, they've done this for 20 years, and now can you imagine? Puts the final thing, sweeps it out. It's done. Now what? Look at verse 16. The now what is celebrate and worship. Celebrate and worship. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Look at verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. That's what they did. They worshiped with joy. They said, okay, we're done. What should we do? Let's, in a sense, throw a party. Let's celebrate. Let's worship God who helped us accomplish this great feat. Now, here's one problem. You might push back on that and say, well, yeah, I get it. <laughs> How easy would it be to rejoice after completing a 20-year project? They just completed this huge feat. They built the temple. Obviously, let's crack, a, you know, let's crack some champagne on that thing and let's celebrate it. What reason do we have? Well, we don't... Let's, we don't even have our own building. Right? What reason do we have? We got to walk from the pool. What reason do we have to worship God and to sing with joy? Some of us don't like to celebrate unless everything is perfect and things are going just how we hope them to. Some of us can't worship God until we feel like worshiping God. But God wants us to be able to celebrate with joy even when things aren't as good as they could be. And we see this in our text. We might miss it if you don't know the story of Scripture. When you first read verse 17, look at verse 17. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now, when you first read this, think about that. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. What an extravagant worship gathering, <laughs> right? It's a lot going on. But, when you compare it to the original dedication ceremony of Solomon's temple, you get a better picture of what is actually going on here. At the first dedication, remember, they had a king, King Solomon, a great and wise king. They had the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Ark of the Covenant, where the, the, the Ten Commandments were housed there, right? This, the staff that budded was housed there. They had the Shekinah glory of the Lord visibly present in the temple there. And on that day when they dedicated the first temple, here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 63. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Okay, 22,000 oxen, and now here we are, temple version two, 100 bulls. 
Version one, 120,000 sheep. This one, 200 ram, 400 lambs. Right? You get the upgraded iPhone, and it's worse than the version one. Right? You're like, no, this is not what I paid for. This is not what I hoped for. This is not what I expected. That's what we're experiencing right here. These people are worshiping God and celebrating with joy when their worship gathering is wah, wah. When every old timer in the place, I remember the good old days. I remember Solomon, man. He was head to toe blood for a week. That's back when we used to worship God rightly. We really cared about God back then. See, this is a much more modest celebration. And yet, it is still marked with joy. Why? God's people here show that they have been reading God's story and so they know how they're to respond when they, even in the midst of difficulty, they experience an evidence of God's grace. They are to rejoice and worship. They're to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him creatures here below. Nehemiah, I'm jumping ahead because we're gonna talk about this later this year, but Nehemiah, Ezra's contemporary, when they were rebuilding the wall and they brought in Ezra and the the books were open. We're about to meet Ezra. We haven't even met Ezra yet in the book of Ezra so far. And they start reading the law. They start reading the scriptures. And what happens is the people start weeping because they realize that how far they've fallen from what God is expecting of them. And this is what Nehemiah tells them in chapter eight, verse 10. He says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. What's he saying? You're in a difficult time. I want you to find joy in the good things that you have. Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and listen to this. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not your vision board about your future perfect life. That is your strength. Wake up every morning and just look at your pictures of the perfect life that you want. And that's going to give you the motivation to get out there and tackle your day. No, the joy of the Lord is your strength. How are we to have joy in the midst of pain, setbacks, lackluster results, failed projects, and even below average life experiences? How are we to have joy when our emotions just are all over the place? I think the only way for this to happen is if we can understand the story that we are in. See, this week as I was studying this text, I was kind of put myself in these guys' position and understanding the context and understanding what's going on, the Lord brought Psalm 23 to mind. And Psalm 23 is the Christian story in six verses. Psalm 23 is our story as a short poem or hymn. It used to be sung. 
And these believers here in Ezra would have known Psalm 23 by heart. They would have rehearsed it. They would feel themselves, they would know as it's describing their ancestors, it was also describing them. And this is what I want us to understand, this 21st century American Christians, that this story that we're reading is our story. We're a part of this history. These people are our people. It's meant to shape us in how we live today. These people in Ezra would have sang Psalm 23 Hundreds, if not thousands of times. They would have had it memorized. They would have had it lodged in their psyche. So when they arrive at this moment in their scene, they know just what to do. They know how to respond. If you've got your Bible, open up to Psalm 23. If you don't have this psalm memorized, you need to memorize this psalm. We know it here. It's a psalm of David. <clears throat> psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Let me read it for us. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, immediately, right here, what does that mean? That the Lord, Yahweh, the God of all the universe, who's particularly revealed himself to the Israelites, that he wants to lead them. Right? He wants to lead them. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, this means that God will give us everything we need for life and godliness. This does not mean if I'm following the Lord, I will never want anything. Okay? Many people that read that think that that's what that means. It doesn't mean that. It means he will meet all of our needs. Look, he, my shepherd, makes me lie down in green pastures. Oh, boy. Many people's God, he feels more like Pharaoh behind them with a whip at their back. He makes them work hard, work hard, work hard, do more, do more, try hard, be better. David knew the Lord to be something different from a taskmaster. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, this is interesting. As David is writing this, that he is basically here preaching the gospel to himself. Okay, this is theology. This is theology and prayer kind of mixed. He's, you could say he's journaling to himself. He's telling his soul things that he knows about God because God has revealed them, them to him. You see it over. He will do this. He will do this. He will do. It's about God. It's not to God. Do you see that? We often, when we're walking through difficult seasons, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves, God wants me to lie down and take a nap. Thank you, David. <laughs> Some of the most godly things you could ever do is take a nap. Now, if you're lazy, not you. Get up and go to work, right? 
But this is one of the way God restores our soul. Times of silence and times of solitude where we put the phone down and we put the TV down and we put the computer away. We move away from work and we rest in the Lord. But this is interesting. Verse four, David switches. Understanding the gospel understanding who God is as his shepherd and that he's going to restore his soul and he leads him beside still water and he's going to lead him in the right paths, paths of righteousness for his namesake. Preaching the gospel to himself does something to his own soul in the moment. And look how his soul responds. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. First three verses, God is like this. God does this. He does that. He does this. Now, when I'm walking through this difficulty, you are with me. See, the valleys of life, the valley of the shadow of death here is meant to draw us closer to our shepherd. When everything is smooth sailing and it's sun, sun is shining and rainbows and clouds and sheep are hopping along and there's plenty of grass, I see it. It doesn't really matter how close to the shepherd I am. I see him up there. We're good. But when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and there's wolves and there's dangers and it's dangerous, you want to be right here with Jesus. You want to be grabbing his cloak, right? Grabbing his robe and be right here with Jesus. And why do we go through difficulties? It's for this very reason. The difficult seasons, the valley of the shadow of death is meant to make us draw closer to our Savior. Draw closer to our shepherd. Verse 4, even though For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now look at this. This is the verse that kind of brought this whole psalm to mind as I was studying this text today. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In the midst of a city that hates you, I want you to build a temple and I promise to be there. Enemies all around, I'm going to prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I have so much to rejoice. I have so much to be thankful for. I deserve death, hell, and the grave, and you've given me salvation. My cup overflows, Lord. God wants us to worship in the midst of our problems and adversaries. Verse six, look at this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And here's the culmination. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Con Westminster Confession tells us what's the chief end of man to enjoy God to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does David want to do here? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now listen, this psalm was meant to shape their soul in such a way. It was meant to put them in a little story that they knew how to respond to difficulty, 
how to worship God in the midst of pain and setback. Our worship, too, is meant to be shaped by this story. It's the only way we can have joy in the midst of pain. We have to know that what we do each week is meant to shape us as a character in the story of God so that we can live rightly for him out there in the main stage. So here we have the people of Ezra's day with their enemies all around, with 20 years of hard work behind them, and they knew exactly what to do. They celebrate, they worship God with joy. Because this is what we are for. This is why we're here. It's interesting too. As you study the Psalms, you learn that Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 are put in that order for a very specific reason. Psalm 22 begins. Like this, quote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a psalm, it's a long psalm, and it's full of pain. It's full of grief and loss and violence. A person is experiencing unjust suffering and is crying out to God in the midst of that pain. Why me? Why God? Are you there? What is going on? And it's the longest of those three psalms. Now, it's interesting because Psalm 22, Jesus quotes on the cross. He says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Well, then there's Psalm 23 that we just read. The Lord is my shepherd who leads me through the valley of the shadow of death to the house of the Lord. That's the journey that we see in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death to the house of the Lord. Come on, come with me here. Psalm 22, all about death, all about loss, all about destruction. Psalm 23, about moving through the valley of the shadow of death, and it culminates in the house of the Lord. Then there is Psalm 24. Psalm 24 begins like this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Then it ends with, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. We're moving through death, right? This dark season, this depressive season, this darkness all around us. Then we see this moment in time where we don't know what's going on and we don't know where God is and everything seems to be set against us. Then Psalm 23, trust the shepherd. Pull close to the shepherd, like going through a haunted house when you were a kid. Put your face in the back of your mom and just walk. (laughs) That's how we follow the shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death. But where is the shepherd going? He is the king of glory who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. 
He will renew and restore all things. That's where this story is going. And so when we come together on a Sunday morning, when we all got one hour less sleep, right? That's the story we're a part of right now. Where do you feel? Are you, a, are you in a Psalm 22 mood? Are you in a Psalm 23 mood? Or maybe everything's going well for you in your Psalm 24 mood. It doesn't matter. You're all a part of the story. And however you feel in the moment, God is requiring of you the same exact thing. Worship him. Enjoy right now. These are like three chronological scenes that go from suffering to glory. Old Testament. They're meant to teach us how to live our life now, but they're also meant to be snapshots that when Jesus shows up and does what he does, we go, oh, God's kind of been talking about this for a long time. Jesus is Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 and Psalm 24. All of it points to him. From the curse of sin on the cross, Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus became a curse for us. So he was cursed. He was the shepherd that led, that led himself to the cross to pay our price for us, to die our death in our place for us, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And in his death and in his resurrection, and his, he's exalted into glory at the right hand of the Father right now. He is the king of glory, and he's coming again one day to set up his kingdom on this earth. That's the story that we're a part of. That's the work that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And that's the work, that's the story we tell week in and week out when we come in here. Our worship, this, our worship every single week is meant to prepare us to live rightly. It's a character in God's story out there in the world. And here we're reminded that God is the author of all history. He is telling his own story and he has graciously written us into it. We all have a part to play and we come in here week in and week out. We are to rejoice in the Lord always Again, I say, rejoice. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he offers himself to you today. As the Christians are going to come down and we're going to, the Lord has literally prepared a table for us this morning, a table with his own body and blood on it, and we're going to come down and we're going to eat a meal together. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Celebrate his faithfulness to us. But if you are not a believer, if you've not been baptized, we ask you this morning to take Christ by faith rather than taking these elements this morning. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for this story. I thank you for the way that you've written all of creation to tell of your glory and tell of your wonder and retell the story over and over and over and over. I pray that we, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we could recognize the scene that we are in, that we would understand how you want us to respond to it, the type of person you want us to be, while at the same time, we look past ourselves 
to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. That all these stories point to. Our work matters, but only Jesus' work is what saves us and what's going to completely renew this cosmos. We look forward to that day. Would you give us joy? Would you help us worship you rightly this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.